0: if I was a part of this movie or if this was like a thing happening in real life I would simply die like I don't understand why so many people try to survive in these apocalypse end of the world type movies because it's like what's what's the end game here y'all what are we what are we fighting for you know Coming to you from the Fifth Element Podcast Network, I am Chishon Pugh and welcome back to another episode of Black Women Watch. We are five episodes in, meaning that we have three more episodes left and I just can't believe that it has been this long, which in reality I guess it hasn't really been that long, but for me it's it's been a long journey so... I am, um, of course, as always, very, very excited. Uh, the movie that I did pick for today is... Uh, there's a lot going on, so I don't want to waste too much time. Like, there's a lot of information to try and get through, so we're just honestly going to go ahead and hop right on in there. So this movie was written by Bill Lancaster and John W. Campbell Jr., this is directed by John Carpenter and it stars Kurt Russell, Keith David, T.K. Carter, and Wilfred Brimley. On this episode titled Checkmate, this is 1982's box office bomb turned one of the greatest movies ever made, The Thing. Mayday. Mayday. You oh. This is U.S. Station 31. You read me? something in the ice. We need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? First things first, we gotta talk about my history and relationship with this movie. Now, contrary to all of the other movies that I have reviewed on this podcast so far, I actually have watched (laughs) The Thing before, but let me just say that I haven't watched the entire movie. So I started watching like The first I think 10 to 25 minutes of the movie but I really wasn't paying attention and to be quite honest I was a little bored so I turned it off and I was like maybe one day I will be able to sit down and just watch this movie all the way through and it'll be great just like everyone says that it is and uh, yeah I finally just willed myself to do it and it's done so that's uh, as far as like my relationship with this goes, cause I don't really remember hearing too much about this growing up. Um, obviously I was not around when the movie came out, but even then, like afterwards, it wasn't really like a big thing, I guess, in like my personal bubble. So I didn't really hear about it too much until I started actually watching movies more and expanding, um, the genre, you know, expanding and looking into different genres of things. So. That's as far as that goes, but let's like I said, we've got a lot to get through, so let's go ahead and let's let's just take it from the top. So this film was based off of a short story called "Who Goes There," which is written by John W. Campbell Jr. Which, if you notice, um, when I was introducing the movie, I did mention his name with one with the written credits. So, um, what John Carpenter did is he just basically gave John Campbell a writer's credit because essentially this is his novella, like, not word for word, but just, it's, this is what it's based off of, right? It's just literally like the same thing except it's just a visual aid, I guess, so, Um, yeah, so this film was based off of that story, and it was actually, uh, published in August of 1938, so that was around the time where sci-fi, sci-fi has always been, like, a, a big genre, but towards, like, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, it really starts to pick up more, and it starts to become a little bit more modernized, so, and I always think it's really interesting that, like, people from back then had these really like outlandish ideas as to things that could possibly happen in the world and the way that they were writing stories, it's like, I wonder what was going on back in that time? Like, what, what, what was happening? Um, so this short story has been adapted into a film three times. So the first one was in 1951 and that film is called The Thing From Another World And then the second adaptation was the 1982's The Thing, probably the more popular one. And then you had the 2011 uh, prequel, also called The Thing, that was made. And they're actually talking about doing maybe like a reboot or a sequel. I don't really know. It was announced last year. Um, John Carpenter said that he was working with Bloomhouse and they were trying to like do a sort of Reboot or remake of it. So I'm not really sure there's not a lot of information based off of that but they're still trying to come up with concepts and I feel like There is a lot that you could possibly do with this film and I guess with the situation um, That the novel and the film both kind of give to the audience, but I'm really just curious to know just what exactly are they gonna do you know because I feel like if you're gonna try and remake a movie and I feel this way about the 2011 um remake or prequel so to speak because I've seen bits and pieces of it and I mean there's you really don't even have to watch it (laughs) because it's the exact same thing as The Thing from 1982 except it maybe expands a little bit more on the creature of The Thing and just kind of maybe like its origins a little bit but I always say if you aren't adding anything new to the movie that you're trying to like remake or reboot, then just leave it alone. Um, I think the thing from 1982 stands on its own, obviously really well. Um, and I just feel like if you aren't trying to expand or add on to that, then there's no need for us to uh, make another one. I mean, you could always just re-release it in theaters and just let that be that. So, <laughs> um. So with this movie, there were so many people attached to this film, like, just reading through the making of this film was just so, it gave me a headache because I'm like, how many people were attached to this movie? How many people dropped out of this movie? It's absolutely ridiculous, um, but ultimately uh, John Carpenter got attached to the project coming off of the success of 1978 Halloween so he was really intrigued by the creature and he was really intrigued by like the essence of the entire film like okay you have these group of people an alien comes along and it disguises themselves as like someone within the camp and now they're trying to figure out who's real and who's not and it just leads to a lot of paranoia and things of that nature and he drew a lot of um, inspiration from Agatha Christie's and then there was one but let me pause on this note for a second because while I was doing research, I, first of all, let me just say, I have never read an Agatha Christie book before. Um, It's not because I don't want to, it's just because I haven't. And yeah, I just haven't read a, a book by her yet. But when I went to go click on, and then there was one just to figure out like what exactly the book was about. So essentially the plot is not yeah it's kind of similar to the thing where uh, a group of I want to say it was eight people are sent to this island and like they all start mysteriously to like to die and so everyone's trying to figure out like who's killing who like what's going on and supposedly uh they're all called there because in their personal lives outside of the island, they murdered someone or had someone killed and so they were being sent there to be, you know, like killed also, I guess, because someone wanted justice for the people that were killed and I don't know, it's like a, kind of like a Saw thing if you think about it. Um, But yeah, so it was just really interesting because the name of the book is titled and then there was one, but the original (laughs) name of the book is actually uh 10 little bleep words and I was like oh okay Agatha Christie is racist so that's uh that's really interesting (laughs) that's not something I kind of wanted to stumble on but um it was originally titled 10 little (laughs) n-words because it's based off of like a a children's rhyme Um, I don't know how the rhyme goes, and I I don't want to know how the rhyme goes. But after that was published, um, a lot of the publishers were like, you know, I think this is a bit much, so let's change the title of it. So then they changed the title to Ten Little Indians, which is just as racist. And after Ten Little Indians, it became, and then there was one. So that was uh, quite the history lesson. So now I'm just like, do I... Do I want to read Agatha Christie's work? Um, I don't know what her attitudes <laughs> towards Black people were like, but I think it's pretty clear from uh, from what we've seen so far. So very, very, very interesting. I know I mentioned that... Um, It took a lot of people especially as as far as directors it they went through a lot of directors to try and figure out who was going to direct this film and eventually um john carpenter signed on and it was kind of the same with screenwriters they went through a bunch of screenwriters who had written a bunch of stuff and they were just like the producers are like no this sucks so they had i think they went through about four screenwriters before they landed on um the one that actually wrote the film and I think it speaks true to me as a screenwriter because he had a really hard time trying to get through the second act of the movie and I know he mentioned that it took him months to write but it's to me well sometimes I guess when I'm well not sometimes a lot of the times when I'm watching movies I can clearly see oh okay this is like a little teaser oh you know what this is the entire first act okay here's the problem that's being established like this is a thing that we need to solve or fix throughout the movie okay now we're moving into the second act oh okay here's the climax now we're moving to the third act so but for me with the thing it was a little hard trying to distinguish the end a little bit of the end of the first act and then moving into the third act it was a little it was a little hard and i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i didn't really like the thing too much like I liked it it's something that I watched and I was like oh okay you know what that was actually pretty cool but it's not a movie that I would like go out and buy on DVD or um it's not something that I would uh go to the movie theaters to see I don't know it's just it's a it's a good movie I don't want people to to listen to this and then think I'm saying it's not a good movie like it is a good movie I guess it's just not something that I'm particularly interested in... I don't know. I don't, hopefully that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Anyway, um, so there were four drafts of the script and truth be told, I feel like for a feature, I want to say that's probably decent. I want to say that's pretty decent. If you're a professional screenwriter, I want to say that's pretty decent. Um, If you're going over more than four drafts, then... I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah, so it was a it was a pretty hectic start to the film. 12 men have just discovered something for 100,000 years. It was buried in the snow and ice. And this also really bled over into the cast as well. So, Kurt Russell who plays McReddy Um, was the last one to be casted even though he did have a hand in um, helping with ideas for the film but he was the last person to be casted so Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges and Nick Nolte were also option for the role and I thought that was pretty interesting because I cannot see Christopher Walken like playing this character. I could see Jeff Bridges however and I am not embarrassed to admit that I did believe at one point that Jeff Bridges and Kurt Russell were the same person because I'm like, have you ever seen them in the same room together? I don't think so. But they do look alike. I think if you slap on a beard, you know, with Jeff Bridges, if you slap on a beard with Kurt Russell, like the one he had in the movie, they do favor each other. I wouldn't say they're brothers, but I would say maybe they're like cousins, maybe distant cousins. I think they look alike. Anyway, um... I think outside of Kurt Russell, I would have loved to see Jeff Bridges in this role. I think he would have done really, really good. So I don't know if he was one of the ones that wanted to do it, but his schedule didn't work or if he just turned it down completely. But I just thought that was a really interesting thing. And it's always fun to kind of hear who was optioned to play these like really iconic roles because you think, man, how different would that movie have been if... This person played this role, but I think ultimately everyone that was casted in this movie uh, did a really good job, and I think it was casted uh, correctly. So um, after Kurt Russell was casted, the actors' pay actually went from fifty thousand each to four hundred thousand each. So I'm just saying maybe it is a really good thing that Kurt Russell was um, selected to play this role. Although I do wonder. If Jeff Bridges was casted, it would have been $100,000, oh, 150000 you know, not 150000 but I meant like 500000 maybe close to, I don't know if they would have gotten close to a million dollars. I doubt it, especially because the movie really did bomb. I doubt they would have gotten paid that much. But anyway, um, so I also thought it was super interesting that Carl Weathers, as well as Isaac Hayes, were looked at to play the role of Childs, who, um who is played by Keith David And I was like, Isaac Hayes, man, how freaking cold would that have been? And that's no pun intended, but like, how cool would that have been to have Isaac Hayes playing this part? Like, oh man, I feel like that would have been really awesome. And I also feel like Carl Weathers would have been really, really good in this role as well. Because they each all have this, like, bravado to them. They just, you know, they just have this, this like vibe I guess I'm trying to say they have this vibe and I would have loved to I think any one of them would have really honestly killed this part um and I don't know it is a thing because Child's his character Keith Davis character didn't really have that much of a He did have a big role, but I don't think he had that many, um, like, speaking lines. So it's not a thing where you could really see just how, like, good of an actor they were, but I think it would have been enough, you know, and especially for The Times, I feel like it would have been enough, and it definitely would have helped catapult careers because that's what it did, actually, for um, Keith David. It actually helped him catapult his career to where he is now and he's he's so good. I really want to see him in more uh, roles like this and that's what I really appreciate about him is that he never sticks to one particular role even though I feel like he does play the villain in a lot of stuff but that's fine because I love it. He's a really good villain Um and funny enough he was actually uh, coming off of theater when he got this role so I feel like this is probably... I'm not sure if it's one of his first film roles, but it just was a role where it was like he had to learn how to tone down his emotions and his expressions when he was filming because he was just really used to being on the stage and being on the stage means people are going to be far, far away, you know, and they can't really, they're not sitting in front of a big screen, so you really have to play up the expressions on your face and all that good stuff. So he... um he needed some help with that so I just thought that that was pretty pretty cool thing to learn. And uh, as far as black characters goes, because that's something that I also immediately pay attention to when I'm watching movies, um, there are only three black characters in this film and uh, it was a comedian, Franklin A.J.? A.J.? A.J. A.Y.E. hope I'm pronouncing that right, who auditioned for one of the roles but when he went in to I guess to read for Carpenter and maybe some of the producers, he actually went on a long rant about how stereotypical this particular character was and how he just wasn't like up with it Uh, and it ended in like a really awkward silence and then he left or I'm assuming he left or was asked to leave but I really want to know what that conversation looked like and it's just a thing of like was John Carpenter understanding of what he was trying to say. Um, is this something that was mentioned to the screenwriter when he was writing it? Um, was, you know I just want to know what that conversation really looked like because at this point I'm kind of looking at John Carpenter with the side eye like hmm okay but you know. And one thing I also thought was pretty funny was the fact that Richard Masur who plays Clark in the film actually turned down a role in E.T. For this movie. Now, if this was me back in 1982 or 19 the late 1970s, when I guess they started filming for this, I would have been like, What is your problem? Why would you do that? <laughs> because ET was such a huge hit, and that's why the thing bombed as much as it did, was because At that point, in in those early years of like the late 70s and the early 80s, we were getting a lot of sci-fi movies, right? And especially during this particular time, you had Alien coming out and you also had, I want to say Alien came out maybe the same exact time as The Thing or maybe a little bit before, but you also had E.T. come out as well and so it was like you have these two really... Great movies, but they're on separate ends of the spectrum because ET is more like family friendly and then you have aliens Which is just straight-up horror Um, And then you have the thing and it's like where exactly does this fit on that spectrum and a lot of people um, When they talked about how much they didn't like the movie, they were just like this is just an alien ripoff It looks terrible. It just looks like you threw a bunch of stuff together like Want I tell you that nobody liked this movie when it came out, nobody liked this movie and it was really, really sad because John Carpenter really thought his career was over because this movie just completely bombed and uh, yeah, but the fact that this man really turned down a role in E.T. just to um, get a role on the thing, is there, that's a really interesting uh, choice to make. And I know I feel like a lot of actors and actresses within the industry can attest to a moment where they turned down like a really big iconic role for another role somewhere else. Kind of like with Will Smith, you know, in the last episode with The Matrix, how he turned down the role of Neo so he could star in Wild Blood West, which, like I said, I really like both movies. So it makes sense sometimes. Sometimes you're just not ready to take on certain things. But I just wonder, like... Does he does he think about that like every night when he goes to sleep he's like dang i should have really taken that role <laughs> i know i'm human some of you are still human this thing doesn't want to show itself it wants to hide inside an imitation it'll fight if it has to but it's vulnerable out in the open now ultimately my problem with the characters is that there are too many characters which is kind of saying something because I want to say the novel or the short story had 37 characters and they took the 37 characters and they um, winded it down to 12 but I still feel like 12 was just too much. I mean I get why they would do 12 because you still need enough people to where if someone randomly goes missing it's not that big of a deal because you're like okay well that was just one person now there's 11 of us so it's still like fuels the the story because you're not eliminating like the top protagonist as of yet but I still feel like it was just too many people to try and keep account of and when people were dying I was like I have no idea who that was the only person that I really knew was obviously like the three black people and then Kurt Russell's character And maybe like one of the doctors. Um, But other than that, I was like I have no idea who is who, who, what what their names are, you know, um, I didn't know anything. And I just felt like they were a little bit underdeveloped. But again, I feel like with certain movies it can work if you can like finesse it to work that way. But I like to kind of care about my characters and I feel like maybe, well I guess given the budget, I know they already had to cut out a lot of stuff and leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor so um, and I know a lot with the DVD like there were a lot of like deleted scenes and um, alternate endings and things like that so I know they probably didn't have too much room to add on um, like more dialogue heavy scenes so it makes sense that there isn't much about these characters or there isn't a lot of backstory about these characters but I feel like it probably would have helped me at least feel for the characters a little bit no- more. So I know with like Kurt Russell's character, McReady, um, he is actually a Vietnam like veteran and this is kind of explains why he's reacting to this situation in the way that he is um he's a alcoholic he has ptsd so he's seen a lot of things and um he yeah it it just really all explains why the way why he reacted the way that he reacted i cannot talk today for whatever reason but um i just felt like if i had some sense of knowledge about that in the film Besides him drinking at the beginning um, and maybe there were a few little clues left in the dialogue but I otherwise I would not have known especially if I didn't do the research I wouldn't have known this stuff so um, I mean again it makes sense but I just feel like I don't know if there was just some way that they could try and finesse it so that we could learn a little bit more about these characters then maybe I would have uh, cared a little bit more but there were no women involved, which is something else that I realized. But with the 2011 prequel, uh, Mary Elizabeth, I don't remember her last name, but she's actually really, really cool. Um, She is the main character in that film, um, which I thought was, you know, pretty decent, but there were like no women in this film. And they did that for a reason. Um, A lot of it was just to kind of like emasculate men (laughs) Uh, but the only woman that was credited for this movie which I don't even think she showed up in the credits was John Carpenter's then wife who played the voice of the computer in the beginning but outside of that there was like no women in this film and a lot of people I think maybe the writer said it or it might have been like one of the producers or maybe even John Carpenter himself I don't remember who said it but they were just like you know we didn't want to add a female character in this because then she would have had become a romantic interest and that would have really just taken away from the film and I'm like no not necessarily like she can just be in the movie like you can take a guy out and then just put her in his spot and it'll just be the same movie. Like, there's nothing wrong with adding women to movies and not having them be romantic interests. Like, I hate forced relationships, romantic relationships in movies. It ruins everything. It's like, you know, not every woman, first of all, not every woman needs to have a relationship with another, with a man. Um, And secondly, like, not everything has to be romantic. Like, they could be friends. We could all be friends, you know? So, I didn't really care for that too much as well so I think maybe that's another reason why I was really not into it as much because I'm imagining like ooh what if this was like an all women crew like how different would this movie have gone and it makes me think about that horror movie I want to say it's called The Descent and I want to say it's one of the very few horror movies that actually has an all woman cast and the fact that it's one of the very few, says a lot. I don't know, like why do, why do people hate women so much? <laughs> Misogynist. Why do people hate women? I think women are awesome and I think women should be the lead in all the movies and I think that if women had been the lead in some of these movies, maybe these movies would have been better and I think that Hollywood needs to do a better chance of spotlighting women um, in particular women of color, but anyway, i'm gonna hop off my little pedestal, (laughs) my little soapbox. now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. now i want to talk about the filming of the thing and like pre-production, so it took them 12 weeks to make this movie. Um, half of it was filmed in Alaska and another half of it was filmed on a temperature control lot in LA and some of it was also filled, filled, filmed in, um, British Columbia. Uh, Keith David was actually in a car accident the day before they started shooting and he had a cast on his hand and he actually had to paint it the color of his hand and um, I know they mentioned that you don't even see his hand um, in like the first half of the movie, but when we do see it, he has a glove on so that you can't see his cast. So I just thought that was like really bizarre thing to, um, you know, get into a car accident the day, before you're to, the day before you're supposed to start filming a movie. And I think a lot about a lot of the injuries a lot of people have sustained while filming movies. Um, in particular, I think about Brendan Fraser and The Mummy and like how he was just... Oh, poor Brendan, he was just really messed up when they were filming that because I know he did uh, a lot of the stunts and um he has often said that the stunts that he's done within those three movies has really just like harmed his body even beyond repair and I just think that it's just such a I don't know it's just it's really such a bizarre thing for a lot of people to put themselves in danger like that but they still you know want to continue to work I want to continue to make these movies sort of like Carrie and Moss when she was filming for the matrix you know she I want to say either sprained her ankle or she twisted her ankle or she did something and she hurt something but she refused to tell anyone on the set because she was scared that they were gonna like take out that particular scene or like make her sit something out so I don't know I think about that a lot um, And there are, like I said before, so many scenes that were left on the cutting floor. Uh, I feel like it's unimaginable how many things that they cut from this movie and I wonder if they were to put all of the scenes that they cut as well as the alternate like endings and alternate scenes in one film, how long would the film be? And I'm gonna bet money that it's probably over four hours long. Like. longer than Wolf on Wall Street? Yes, Martin Scorsese could never (laughs) but I again it's just another thing too and this is just to give credit to the editors because they really do make the movie like everyone makes the movie right and I think that's why it's so important that we not only talk about the directors or the writers or the cinematographers well we don't even talk about the writers we just talk about the directors and the cinematographers we need to talk about the writers you know because Without the writers, we wouldn't have a, a film to film, right? And uh, without the editors, you know, your movie would just be one long blob of stuff. So shout out to all the editors out there that are working hard and sitting in the editing room, like probably in the dark for hours, straining your eyes and <laughs> your blue lit sunglasses. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making this movie uh, what it is. So... Like I mentioned before the ending did not go well over well with the audiences. Um, the movie in general didn't go well with any audience. Um, particularly I think they said the first ending they came up with was that uh, I want to say that they killed the alien but it was like more explicitly explicit explicitly shown that they killed the alien or it, it was something to that effect but they thought it was too cliche and too cheesy and so the ending that they ultimately set upon was really ambiguous and kind of like open-ended. Um, no, that wasn't the ending. The first ending was that Childs, who was played by Keith David, and um, McGready, who was played by Kurt Russell, they like met up with each other after everything happened and I think they both turned into the thing at the end of the film. Which John Converture was like, nah, I don't really like that. But they ended up switching it to Childs and McReady meeting up with each other after they like blew up their entire camp to ensure that there were no other little parts of the alien like flittering around. Um, and they both acknowledged like, yeah, maybe we should just sit here for a while and like stare at each other. Because it just lets you know that they distrust each other still. But I mean, at that point, there's nothing that you can really do because your entire camp is burned to the ground. You have no way of getting out. Um, And so essentially, they were going to freeze to death, but they acknowledge, like, yeah, I don't really trust you. But I mean, hell, what else can we do? So they actually share a drink among, you know, with each other and they just sit there. And like I said, eventually freeze to death. Um, And a lot of people didn't particularly like that ending either. So it's just kind of like a damn if you do damn if you don't type of situation nobody was really happy with anything and I know that you know like I said with the cliche endings John Carpenter was just really like I want to stray away from that as much as possible so um I like I said I'm just really curious to get my hands on a dvd or just to find these like alternate endings and see which one I liked better. Truth be told, I really do enjoy an ambiguous ending. I really do. I like when it's open-ended because it gives your imagination um, something to really think about. Some people hate it and I and I get why some people hate it, but I I really enjoy ambiguous uh, or open endings Um, and I remember reading that when they show this like a test audience and someone asked like okay well like did they kill the thing or who is the thing like what's happening and, and John Carpenter was like well it, that's up for you like that's up to you to decide like it's an open ending and the guy was like I hate that <laughs> and I feel like a lot of people can attest to that but I I enjoy it because I feel like too it leaves room for you to explore something else right so if they wanted to make a sequel to this, they could leave that open because at the end, you're like, oh, well, at the end of the first movie, we don't know if Childs or McReady is the thing. So I mean, essentially help could come. And I think that's what, that's what the, I want to say the video game came out in 2000. Was it 2000? I want to say it came out in 2000. But the basis of the video game was that after the events happened um, you had two military teams go out there and try and salvage what they could and figure out what exactly happened and um, I think, you know, that can be a sequel where you try and discover what exactly happened to these people, you know. Um, But, uh, like I said, to each its own but ultimately nobody nobody really cared for the ending, nobody really cared for this um, particular movie. But, fret not, things actually did get better for John Carpenter and The Thing when the film went out on home release. So, uh, The Thing found a better audience at home. Um, a lot of people were, you know, going to Blockbuster. Was Blockbuster a thing back in the 80s? Excuse me for sounding really uneducated right now but I don't know if they were open in the 80s but just basically, you know, just like home or, you know, video rental stores were a thing um, and a lot of people were picking up the thing and they were watching it at home and that's where John Carpenter really got his due. So I feel like that's just a lesson, you know, um, for a lot of movies I definitely feel like that are cult, cult classics now that didn't get their due back then I think it's just because you are um, ahead of your time and it sucks and it happens and I really wish that it got its due back then because then again I wonder what it would look like now had it been um, propped up to the heights that is it's propped up now because before it went on a list as like one of the worst movies of all time, but now it's on the list where it's like, these are a thousand movies you need to see before you die. So I think that's really crazy how that happens and I think it's crazy how um, times change and I know also back then we were kind of getting into the like the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic and this film kind of served as a metaphor for that because it's like you know you don't know who has this virus and it's just a, a way of like othering people Um, and I thought it was really interesting that John Carpenter did bring that up and he was like yeah you can look at this film as like a metaphor for that and you know people being afraid of something that they don't know or they don't understand you know and the virus in a in akin to the thing it it is really aggressive with um just how it like took over the human body so I thought that was something that was um appropriate it was an appropriate message for sure sort of like how the matrix was just like a a metaphor for like the trans community you know with the Wachowski sisters both coming out as trans so um yeah, this, this film was definitely with the times. It was definitely with the times. And I think as time progressed, that's when a lot of people started to um, understand it more. And they were able to... They were just able to appreciate it more. And I definitely feel like this movie is a hell of a lot more appreciated now than it was um, back then. It takes us over. And it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. Even the... Uh, The guy who made the first film, the first film adaptation, um, Christian Nyby, Christian Nyby. He, yeah, like I said, he made the 1951 version. He didn't even like the thing. And I think that was the one thing that hurt John Carpenter the most is when he was like, yeah, you know, the guy who wrote the original, like who made like the original film didn't even like my film. So that was like a really huge blow to the ego. But like I said, you know, that's just film and I feel like that's just art. You know, you have these movies and you have these people that you look up to and you make these things and you realize, oh, well, my hero or my inspiration or whoever doesn't really like it. But I feel like at the end of the day, if you like the thing that you made, then like that's it. You don't have to do anything else. Um, And I know I like to look on the or look back at the quote that Beyonce made When she was just like, I make my art, right? And I sit in it and I nurture it and I do what I can to it. And she's like, you know, but when I release it to the world, it's no longer mine. So it belongs to them. And so they take it how they take it. But I know like at the end of the day, I made that thing what it is, you know, and I, I loved it to the best of my ability. And I think that's something that John Carpenter really did because at that point he really didn't have any other option but to just stand firm in his belief that like, I made this film the way that I wanted to make it. I think that it's a great film. And um, like, again, people are gonna love it or people are gonna hate it. And then that's just really uh, what it is, unfortunately. You guys gonna listen to Gary? You can be one of those things. But I kind of want to shift gears at this point because I really do want to talk about my love or dislike for the film. Like I mentioned um, earlier when I was talking about the characters, um, I just really disliked how there were just, to me, there were too many characters to really focus on. And I felt like in some scenes it did drag on a little bit, but I think that the practical effects were so awesome and i miss oh my goodness i miss the like practical effects era of like the 80s like the 70s the 80s and the 90s because that was really like they were really in their bag when they made this movie and god i want to say the name of these special effects guy was was it justin ah i can't oh, i got to think of his name but he was only like 22 when he started No, I think his name is Robert, but he was, like, 22 when he was, like, working on this film. And I'm like, man, you were 22 making these really cool things. Like, how awesome is that? Um, And I will admit, I did get a little creeped out by two of the scenes where they show the creature. And I think the first one was when we really got to see the creature in all of its glory. Um, Which happens toward the beginning of the film and then the second part was when the doctor was trying to resuscitate one of the members And his stomach opened and the doctor's hands got cut off and then another guy got like swall- like half his body got swallowed by the alien. I was like, oh no, absolutely not. It looks too real and it's so gross and I'm just like, that is just so, that's so cool to know that someone actually sat there and they, they did these drawings and they really constructed this thing. And I just think it's awesome, like I don't have any issues with CGI if you can do it well but it's just always a thing where you just know like oh man like that's practical and i think about like the big um movies like musicals that really came out of the like 30s and 40s and 50s like for example singing in the rain um, just how big their sets were and how practical everything was. I thought that was really awesome. And I actually came across a video clip of another film. I don't remember what it was called, but I know it came out in 1938, I do believe. And they had this like typewriter set, but it, it was, a you, you know, you see that and you think, oh, okay, well, maybe that's just like an effect or maybe they painted that on there, but no, like they actually constructed a real life, like typewriter for these people to dance on and I just think that it's so bizarre. You know, I feel like not a lot of people are building things <laughs> these days. Um, So I definitely feel like we need to make a return to practical effects because the practical effects in this film were just absolutely stunning and they belong in a museum somewhere because it was just, oh my god, it was so freaking cool. Which brings me to my other topic of discussion that I'm really excited about and that is the discussion of the Uncanny Valley. So let me explain what this is before I get too deep into it. So the Uncanny Valley was a a hypothesis that was written by a um, robotics professor, Masashiro Mori? Forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, from the nineteen seventies. And basically his whole uh paper was just really about how the human reacts to robotics, right? So for example, Wally. We all know Wally, right? The little lovable Disney robot. I would like a Wally. ei I don't know, if they offered people wall I would probably buy one because I think Wally is cute. Wally is cute enough to a point where I'm like, I know that's a robot and I think it's cute that it does show a little bit of like human behavior and human reactions. But the more that you try and make WALL-E like, life-like, the more creepy it gets. <laughs> and uh, first of all, This paper wasn't even supposed to be put out, right? So this was something that was, I want to say it was accidentally put out, quote unquote, accidentally um, put out. But before anyone could really do anything to like stop it from reaching the public, it had already spread. So it it was too late. Um, And another thing is that people, don't believe that the uncanny valley is actually real because Mori never really did any real research he it was never really based on any actual like foundational study it was just something that he again it was just a hypothesis where he was just like i think that the more you try and make robotics life like the more people are going to be creeped out by it um and i i say this with in in conjunction with the movie because you know you have this alien and you don't know who is what right so you see your your crewmate and you think oh well that's that's my crewmate that's not you know someone else but then they show themselves to be something different and that is what creeps us out so we are i guess we as humans we are very compassionate people or species and we're A species where we have to be in packs, right? We're, we aren't like a a loner species, we are, we are people who have to be around other people, which is why the pandemic was so hard for people to kind of get used to, um, especially with like social distancing and having to self-quarantine at home because it's like we need human contact, right? And um, it's just, I don't know, and I'm scared by it, like I guess I should also say this, I do have a phobia of things um, that are inanimate that portray human life because I just, I don't trust it, I don't like it, but I think it's such an interesting thing because I really love like the premise of this movie and I really like it when horror movies or maybe like thriller movies or mystery movies, they they do this plot where it's like, oh ha ha ha, you think this person is this but then they turn out to be something totally different you know and I think that's probably one of the more sinister things that you can do as a person like for example I think about a lot of like serial killers from not even just from like the 60s and 70s but from today as well uh more in particular I'm thinking about uh Ted Bundy Ted Bundy I want to say I'm thinking about Ted Bundy Are you ever Jeffrey Dahmer I can't I don't, I don't know. But it's one of them. I want to say it's Ted Bundy. But, you know, he was one of the ones where he would pretend to be really docile and he would pretend to be hurt and he would pretend to be uh, handicapped, you know, in order to elicit compassion from people who would ultimately become his victims. And I think that's just such a, God, that's such a terrifying thing because you think, oh, this person really needs my help. And as humans, we... You know we again I keep using the same word but we are really caring and compassionate people so when we see someone that is hurt we go oh my god they need help let me help them and I think that's one thing that really led to like the spike of a lot of murders and serial killers coming out of the earlier times of like the 60s and the 70s and the 80s because it's like a lot of people were trusting they were really trusting and they being trusting led them to being in in a position where they ultimately um and unfortunately got hurt and i think now we aren't as trusting so you know when you see someone that's stranded on the side of the road you're like well sorry <laughs> like i'm sending you thoughts and prayers but i'm not stopping to pick you up because who knows i don't know who you are and i don't know what you're going to try and do um but to say that i really am scared of things that uh portray human life but aren't human. I absolutely love the idea of that. And I don't know why and I've been trying to do a lot of research trying to figure out why exactly I would like something like that, but it's just been, it's been really hard to explain. And um, it it reminds me of a a funny story. Well, it's a funny story now. It wasn't so funny back then. And I know my mom, if she's listening, she will not find it funny either. But it's a story that she does like to tell um, when I talk about my fear of inanimate objects. So back when I was, I want to say maybe I was eight, but I know I was probably under the age of 10, she took me and my brother to Charleston and we went to a place called Palmetto Point, which is just like a really big um, dock shipyard where they have a lot of um, military ships out there so you can pay and you can go and like walk on these ships and just kind of see what life was like right Um, for the soldiers that were living on these ships for months and months at a time and I didn't think anything of it truth be told I didn't really know where we were going I just knew that we were just taking a little family trip and I was like okay cool so we go there um and we start walking on these ships and it was something that my brother was really interested in as well because he's actually in the military so I know like for him it was really exciting to kind of see these sorts of things but for me I was really like whatever we're going on a trip okay um (laughs) and so uh we we started walking on one of these ships and again i wasn't thinking anything of it and we get into like i I specifically remember we walked into the mess hall and there were these dummies that were sitting like in the little cafeteria seats and i just froze i was like oh no absolutely not no way no how i'm you know i want to get off right now (laughs) And my mom was like, what is wrong with you? And I just kept pointing at them. I was like, I'm really scared of those things. And she's like, they're not real. I'm like, you don't know that. <laughs> and it was just such a thing where I was really highly convinced that they, whenever my mom wasn't looking, they were going to like look at me or something. And it, it wasn't one of those. I think maybe I would have fared better had they had had like an actual face, but they didn't have faces. So it was just like a white cloth. And and then they had like the outlines of the face, but it wasn't like an actual painted face that you would see on mannequins nowadays. And I just, I freaked out. I was, mm -mm. I was not having it. And I remember um, my mom kind of had to drag me through the rest of that one. And then there was another ship. It was a submarine. And I just remember telling my mom, I'm not getting on that submarine. I'm not going down there because what if something happens and we get trapped or, and it was really just claustrophobic. I was like, no. No. And it was funny because I remember she either got a call from my sister's godmother or she called them. I think she called them and she was just telling them to talk to me. And I just remember my my Aunt Judy, she was like, it's okay. You can get on. Like, nothing's going to happen. Like, you'll be fine. And I just remember crying and telling her no. No. And then there was another couple that was there and they were trying to like coax me to get on and i was like absolutely not and so we ended up leaving early and my mom was really upset because she did waste some money but and it was a thing now where she was like you should have told me and i was like mom how was i supposed to know because i think that was really like the first instance of where i knew that i had this fear um, of things like that so i was like mom I was like eight how was I supposed to know that like what was I supposed to tell you like how did I know that we were gonna go there and that was gonna be there so yeah she was really uh, upset with me during that time but it's just something that I look back now and I kind of laugh you know it's a it's a great story to tell my grandkids one day Um, but now I'm slowly trying to rid myself of that fear but it is still something like in the back of my mind that I just really don't trust and I think that is what keeps me safe a lot of the times Um, and I feel like that's a thing that not just for me but I just feel like for humans in general that is a like a safety mechanism that we just have like for example if you're on a enclosed space like if you're in an airplane or if you're on like a boat or a bus or something like that and someone just starts acting very oddly like they start twitching or they they like stare at you for too long or if they have this like weird smile on their face like if they're doing something that is just a bit mm, too much I don't know I don't know the right word or the word that I'm looking for but if they're doing something that's a little bit too much and you're just kind of creeped out by it because you're just like, something about that just doesn't feel right. Like they're smiling too widely, their eyes look a little empty, I don't know, I don't I don't trust it, you know. But that's when you, you stop and you kind of think like, okay, I know this person looks like a human, but the way that they're acting isn't human. And now my, you know, my alarms are going off in my head because now I need to watch this person because I don't know what they are or what they're trying to do. Um, and I think it's just a, a really, just a really interesting bit about the human brain and, and how we perceive stuff. And I mean, you could really, really dig into the research of the Uncanny Valley and and try and understand it more. But again, I just don't trust inanimate things. I really don't. There's actually a guy who comes in at my job, who every time I see him, I just tell myself I don't trust him. Not only because he is an avid Trump supporter, um, and he told me that he was doing a protest of wearing a mask because he's an American and he should say whether or not he wears a mask and I'm like okay um, but just because he just he's one of those people where he just smiles a bit too wide you know and his eyes he looks like a Ken doll he legitimately looks like a Ken doll and I feel like I would trust Ken more than I would actually trust him like me Ken and Barbie we have a long relationship but this guy I'm like I don't know you and I, I don't trust you and I just tell myself you know if he shows up on the news for anything, I'm like, yep, he did it, whatever it is he's guilty because I, I just don't like the look of this guy, but it's a it's a really really um just just funny thing and, and again it's just something that I really like and moving back to, the Uncanny Valley and pretending to be something you're not. I think that really serves well as an antagonist in horror films because that's how you get close to people and like I mentioned before, you know, humans, I think that's what makes us really vulnerable is that we are trusting to people that look like us. Um, and I think I fear that more because you don't know that it's coming. And you, you your guard is essentially down, you know? So with like slasher films or with like just grade A monster films where you're like, I know that's a monster. It looks like a monster. It acts like a monster, you know? But if I'm around a person, I'm like, well, that looks like a person and it acts like a person, but that laugh, that's not a laugh like of a person. Like it sounded completely different. Um, I just think that that is just really, it's just really off-putting and it's unsettling i think that's the word i'm looking for this entire time but it's it's insanely like unsettling and i don't like it <laughs> i guess if that's what you can get from the entire a whole episode is that i just i don't like stuff like that but i do like it because it makes sense if that makes sense anyway i'm rambling so i'm just gonna go ahead and end the episode on this note um I think that The Thing is an excellent sci-fi horror film. Um, I think it's a film that you you don't have to like it but I feel like it's something that you do need to watch. I feel like it's required watching. Um, A shout out to John Carpenter for sticking with this movie even though it didn't really do very well. and like I said there's a reboot in the works at Bloomhouse, so we'll definitely see what they're trying to do with this movie. Um, I would be interested in getting like a sequel if it's a really good sequel and maybe if they actually add women and more people of color in it I would actually give it the time of day. Um, so I think that The Thing has a really bright future and yeah I'm just I'm ready to see where he goes so with that being said uh, this is what black women have been watching as always i would love to hear from all of you i want to know what you're thinking about the movies that we have discussed this far and if you have any recommendations for movies to cover not only on this season but on other seasons um, please let me know make sure you leave us a great review on apple Podcasts, and you can keep in contact with me as well as the show with um, any other updates and things like that at bww uppercase the pod that is bww the pod on instagram and also twitter from the fifth element podcast network i am tashaun pugh as always y'all be safe